You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Kendra Holtmore, and my favorite candy bar is Reese's. Which is technically not a bar, but I don't care. My name is Ian Benz. Answering my favorite candy bar is challenging because it depends on the mood I'm in. Right now, I I if I had to pick a candy bar, I'd probably pick um, uh, Milky Way. I'm Zach Jackson, and I don't really have a favorite candy bar, but I guess if you were to take a bag of Raisinets and melt them together in your car or something, and they all stuck together, then that would be really good. This is Rachel Jackson. And my favorite candy bar is Elite Chocolate with Pop Rocks. So not only do you get chocolate, but you also get a little explosion in your mouth. My name is Adam Pryor. My favorite candy bar, I, I think I would have to go with Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, but I don't know if that qualifies as a candy bar. That's two. <laughs> That's two of you. That's what I said. It's a candy round. Right. I almost said it too, but I felt like I needed to but, be a little. But different. who doesn't like peanut butter and chocolate? I mean, Monsters. I love Reese's. Yeah. I mean, I guess my favorite candy bar you could know, be taking the spoon and putting it into the peanut butter jar, and then just drizzling it with mini chocolate chips, which is also something I do oh, yeah. too frequently. Oh yeah, or Oreos. Okay. Ooh, ooh. Let me give you a hint, then, Adam, and anyone else. If you do that, make sure that you're using mini chocolate chips. It is the same caloric content, but the ratio as it's spread around is far better. That's a good pro tip. I can. That is I, a good yeah. pro tip. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I can believe that. We'll make sure that makes it into the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you're using chocolate chips to enhance something, which really should be all the time, unless you're diabetic, and then talk to your doctor. Um, <laughs> mini, mini chocolate chips are the way to go. We this take that why, authority. This is why grated cheese is so much better because there's more <gasps> surface area for your taste buds. Um, Actually, not just grated cheese, finely grated cheese. See, this feels like it's another episode that we're going to have to add to the list. <laughs> um, so, Kendra, before we derail, before we leave the station, um, I, I think we've Ian left. has to leave in an hour. Can you? I think uh, we've left. Can you get us started? Yeah. I'm gonna derail the dinosaur train. <laughs> dinosaur train. <laughs> dinosaur train. <laughs> okay. So, ugh, get a good stretch. <clears throat> okay. Um, <laughs> I think I'm ready now. So the last time we talked uh, about natural philosophy as the endeavor of using scientific inquiry to understand God's creation and how modern science saw a more explicit separation between theology and science. And uh, we talked about how the development over time of what it meant to do science correctly gave way to depictions of this relationship between religion and science as one of conflict. And we talked about the warfare thesis and how religion was impinging on the property of science in this understanding. And so this week, we want to continue that conversation by talking about the role of authority in our perceptions of what counts as truth in either a religious or a scientific sense. And we think that authority is important for this conversation we're having because we see all the time that both science and religion carry their own forms of authority. 
And when these authorities compete, as they so often do, people have to choose or negotiate how to balance uh, both of those authorities. And uh, one of one of the best historic examples of um, competing authorities with regards to religion and science is just looking back into the time during the, the scientific revolution of the 17th century and how you look at something like uh, Copernicus, an astronomer who proposed the sun-centered theory of the universe and how people at the time, uh, some people were really upset by that theory because they were looking at the biblical text as their authority for how the natural world works. And there's a verse in the Bible it's in Joshua chapter 10 that uh, discusses how the sun stood still um, during a battle for a, a temporary amount of time. And the implication in this verse is that the sun is normally uh, rotating around in the sky. And so for the sun to stand still during this battle meant that the normal state was movement. And so people used this, the authority of this verse to say, no, actually, Copernicus's uh, heliocentrism must be wrong. Like the sun can't be the still center of our universe because here we see in the Bible, it says that the sun normally is moving. And so this, this example shows that, and, and you'll see this all throughout the literature, the historical literature um, discussing this relationship between religion and science where people, they reference the two books. There's this book of nature and uh, the book of scripture. And so the book of nature is this metaphorical book of like what you can see in the natural world. And that has its own set of authority. And then there's the book of scripture, which is uh, the revelation of God through the Bible. And people had different interpretations about how you were supposed to use these two books and like what authority they actually carried. And there is disagreement about that and it caused a lot of contention. But the, the core matter was about like what has authority to guide how we understand what's true. Um, so I think that a good question to maybe like get the conversation rolling is to maybe just go around and we can all say something about how we would explain what authority is. Like what do we think of uh, when we hear the word authority? I think uh, put simply, the the way that we typically use it is one has authority who has the final say. Mm. I think in, in kind of popular parlance, that's what we mean when we say authority. I, I would I would add to that and not have it be restricted as the final say, but almost trust without checking. What do you mean so by that, that? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I'll, I'll use, you know, I'll use a personal example. I'm a mother to a five-year-old. I am his authority in addition to my husband. Scratch that. My husband and I are the authority. Um, <laughs> rather than having... Yeah, I was going to ask what you meant yeah. by that. Go ahead, keep <laughs> going. My husband and I are the authority to our five-year-olds. When we tell him something, he trusts us without needing to verify it for himself. Unless, of course, he's in one of his boundary pushing phases, in which case nothing we say is accurate. But then also in my role as a rabbi, if someone comes to me with a question and I give them a reasonable answer, they then 
don't feel the need to fact check me, frankly, because they trust in my authority for what they have come to me for. So I, I think that's how authority is often also utilized in our context. Yeah, I I mean, obviously I'm not clergy, but I, I agree with your statement, Rachel, about like the role of clergy that you know, a lot of times, you know, I feel like when I hear things from clergy, I tend to be like, oh, well, you know, that's my clergy member. So I'm, I'm good. Um, and then if I if I get the when talking with another member of clergy at a different location or something like that, or someone I'm meeting for the first time that I I won't necessarily apply that same level of authority to them right away. It's almost like it has to be earned. And then I'm not going in there with the idea that, well, this person better earn my my trust so that I can feel like they're a person of authority. It's just naturally, if they say something that I'm kind of like, huh, that doesn't really make any sense. I sometimes as I'm because I'm getting to know them won't ask a question right away, even though as you guys all know, I love to ask questions, but I won't necessarily do it because I don't want to be perceived as being disrespectful to that person. And but then that will make me like subconsciously start thinking about can I, is this person an authority? Is this person I want to talk to more about these topics? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you, um, something after we hear from Zach and Adam too, something that I want to explore more with that sentence is, as you said, on these topics. Right. right? That That you put boundaries on who is what authority in which cases. But before we go there, I'd love to hear, mm -hmm. especially Adam as a person of authority in your college and other places That's in your life. That's a vastly, vastly generous description of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I mean, I, <sighs> this is not the, the, the day to ask me this when I was escaping the, faculty workshops in order to come over here. Um, no, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I guess I would say like, I think of authorities, not authority, right? Like that it's like mm. inherently plural for me. So different contexts carry very different senses of authority. And I don't find myself it's probably not a coherent position, but I also don't care. Uh, it's a very livable and workable position, and so I like it. <laughs> but I think it's really, I, I think it's really difficult, particularly when when we think about religion and science, right? The the difference between religious authority and scientific authority, and how those play into our lives, and and when they play into our lives, um, is fascinating. And I have nothing profound to say about that other than it seems fascinating. So I, I want to push back a little bit about this authority being something that someone that you, you don't question, mostly in thinking about politics. I don't know. I have senators and representatives, some of them I voted for and some of them I didn't. And they go to Washington to represent me. And I tacitly give them a certain authority to govern the authority that we all agree to as a 
representative democracy, that even if you didn't vote for them, even if that's not your person, they have a certain authority to make decisions that impact you. You don't really get a direct say into that. And I question my representatives on a daily basis. Um, and I, I, if I were to be asked, like, do you freely give this authority to this person that you don't agree with on anything at all? I would probably say no. Um, but that's a part of living in a society. You know, when um, Jesus was brought before Pilate, and Pilate says, you know, don't you know, what? why don't you respect me? Don't you know that I have the authority of life and death over you? And Jesus says, Psh, you don't have any authority other than what's been given to you from above. Uh, you know, your, your authority comes from others. It is not inherent to you. It's not intrinsic to your being. You're, you know, the, the um, Thomas Paine would say that the, the, uh, authority of the government comes from the consent of the governed, not from, not from um, some hereditary line, not, not because of blood or birth or pedigree. Yeah, I um, just to hear you talk, Zach, about politics, uh, which implies this system of the people ruling and the people being ruled, There, there's a sense of community there. And I know, like, we've feel community in different scales. So some people talk about community as being something that's very small, and it might feel like a stretch to talk about community as being like your entire society. But I, I think there is something uh, that that we share that is uh, wide enough, obviously, like you have um, a culture that's tied to uh, a society that's governed by a system of politics and government. But I, I say this because authority is something like when I think about authority, I think about a sociologist Emil Durkheim, who is really a popular figure in religious studies departments. People love Durkheim. Um, but he talks about authority as being something that is inherently embedded in community. So you can't really talk about authority and just think about like individual people who are disconnected from a system uh, or from a community or from a form of government. This is something that requires like many people who share a common vision of something, whether we're talking about uh, like a vision of morality or um, maybe it's like principle, political principles. Um, either way, authority is something that arises out of a community. And so there's this sense of trust, even though I think it's still true like Zach was saying, you can question authority and you don't have to agree with like what your authorities are doing. But there is this sense that they have um, some kind of legitimate role in the community and there can be pushback, but you acknowledge that that role exists and should be respected to a certain extent. And so I think that is another uh, really important piece here is that if we're talking about communities where authority exists, then in the conversation of how religion and science relate to each other, like what do those communities look like? Like they are communities in some sense. And so I think that it's also this matter of us imagining like what are the communities that we exist in? Because that's why we feel these competing forces is because we, we belong to a lot of different 
groups of people and have different roles within those groups. Very well said. I think I would have to agree, especially in the idea that to give someone authority and to not necessarily implicit, but a, a combination of what Zach and, and Ian were saying, right? That trust comes with that. And, but I think if the relationship is there, which is part of the communal aspect, then the authority might carry more weight again for their particular area. And I think part of our challenge, as you were saying, Kendra, is that when, when we overlap or when authority oversteps their bounds of what they are, of what they have authority over. And that's really where we get the challenge. And the question that comes to mind here is, is there a person, not a non-deity, who then has authority in all realms Right. If we're talking, if we're talking as scientists, are they then able to tell us who to vote for? And are they then going to tell us, um, right, if they're and, and I'm using the word scientist in a very broad sense, but I was a chemist. And when people hear that, non-scientists hear that, they'll still come to me and be like, so should I eat this? You know how bad these things are for you. And I went, I was a chemist. I have nothing to do with the body. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is nowhere. Right. <laughs> I dealt with hazardous waste and biofuel. Right. We took yeast and made it into jet engines, uh, jet engine propulsion. Like that has nothing to do with whether or not you should take your expensive urine vitamins. Um, <laughs> I clearly have an opinion <laughs> on how I feel about them. But I don't have any authority in saying that. Right. Right. And and going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I am a home baker. I love to bake. And if this rabbi thing doesn't work out, perhaps one day I will open a bakery. But until that point, um, I'll, I'll buy your stuff. I, I, I Thanks. Um, I welcome. make a mean chocolate chip challah. Um <laughs> Whoa. I, I I don't I don't have any actual right. It's just an opinion that I believe that mini chocolate chips have a better ratio and better feel throughout when you use them instead of the regular size chocolate chips. But that's an opinion, and I think that's <laughs> where that's where our line is getting smudged when we're taking somebody who is an expert or who does have authority that we have granted them, and then they start talking. About things that they're not authoritative in. But that, that brings up a question somebody asked me uh, yesterday. They said, is science fact or just consensus? Maybe a little of both. Isn't religion that way too? Well, okay. And so, so then let's talk ratio. Science okay. then. Fact to, um, what was the word? Consensus. 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 Fact to consensus ratio um, in science. Well, uh, before we answer that, right, before we look into the ratio and say it's, oh, it's 70-30 or 30-70, we're in in an age where we have the, the, theoretically, much of the world's knowledge at the tip of our fingers, but 
very few of us have the ability to actually digest and understand in any intelligent way that which what we are reading. And so I'm, I'm thinking particularly if we look at the scientific community and say the consensus is <clears throat> such and such, you know what? I'm not going to be vague. Uh, my apologies if I offend anyone, but this is also my opinion and my stance. One person did a very bad science experiment and said vaccines cause terrible mm. things like autism. Mm. And the entire scientific community went, no, wrong, false, unable to reproduce. This mm -hmm. is totally wrong. He even came out and was like, yeah, well, maybe there was a little bit of fudging. He never actually came out and said, I'm wrong, or I did yeah, something did. completely unethical. <laughs> but everybody did, but else... Everybody else in the entire world that has the authority to say this is bogus has come to the consensus that the facts are wrong. Mm. The general population in many places with all of our communal and cultural hangups still has this thought that, oh, maybe he was on to something. And so there is still this idea that vaccines are bad and so bad that they're worse than the actual disease that we're trying to eradicate. Yeah. It's so is that stuff. factor? Is, that's also consensus with no authority. But, so right. I because one person who has a celebrity right years and years ago, one celebrity who had authority in the realm of TV comes out and says, well, I think vaccines are wrong and I'm not going to vaccinate my child. And suddenly other people jumped on that bandwagon. And this person who had no authority in the realm of medical expertise is gaining consensus about an um, unfactual, incorrect piece of information. So right. I... I I don't know. I think it depends who you're asking and who the audience is that's deciding consensus or fact. Well, and the, and the rent. Yeah. <laughs> the consensus also, I think, matters. Like when we talk about consensus, is the consensus coming from people who are outside the um, like roles of knowledge production? And like, I don't know. I think there is authority without these like specific uh, roles of power, I think. But I don't know. I, I think that there are maybe like different kinds of authority that we're talking about here. Someone who is a scientist who's been trained to produce knowledge and to test through experimentation like that, that comes with it, uh, privileges and power that someone outside the scientific community who maybe like it has celebrity and gets people on board with the idea that we don't need vaccines. Like those are both um, influential and both carry authority for different groups of people. But I think it's a different kind of authority, uh, like at the core, if that makes sense. And it's kind of hard, I guess, to articulate how, because it depends who you ask. So here's a fun story about how um, consensus does not equal truth 
in any way, shape, or form. This is this is from um, a wonderful article on Geek.com written by Jordan Minor back in 2016. So, does anybody remember the show Street Sharks? No. Never heard of it. No. No. no? This was during the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle phase. Um, it was basically a clone Wait, of Teenage Mutant hold Ninja up, Turtles. Hold up. Wait. You, Street Did I say, Sharks was a, a clone of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? So it's about a bunch of, um, I don't remember exactly, a bunch of peop- a bunch of guys that get transformed into shark people who have attitude. <laughs> um, you know, so it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with sharks made by a different production company to capitalize. No on, way. Right? <laughs> Is um, that a control and they've got already? <laughs> attitude because it's the 90s. So there were 40 episodes of this show, but this guy went in in 2003, came across a website called tvtome.com. It was a user-edited Wikipedia-esque show for TV shows, and you were supposed to have to be vetted first before you can edit it, but a show like Street Sharks, nobody cared about, and so they let him in, and he proceeded to invent 26 episodes and a movie, um, which included a female character named Roxy, which wasn't real, and this whole crazy mythology and backstories and you know, he said Henry Winkler was on it and he just he made up this whole thing which it just kind of a creative writing sort of exercise and thought nothing of it until CBS's tv.com bought tvtone.com and integrated all of its content into tv.com bringing with it all of the fake episodes from Street Sharks which then got adapted into IMDb when that came out. And oh. so there are, and then, so once that generation comes of age and it starts using the internet and there's all of these, these nostalgia groups talking about their favorite shows when they were kids. So there, there, there grows all these little groups about street sharks and how much fun we had and, and people talking about these episodes that didn't exist as if they did. And right. they're like, oh my gosh, I remember when I watched that episode. That was crazy. Oh, and there's, there's Facebook groups devoted to Roxy being their favorite character. But she's not real. She was never in an episode. It was just created by this guy as a joke. And that became its own authority because it got picked up on TV.com and IMDb and all these places that then gave it credibility. So if you search for Roxy Street Sharks on, on Google, you'll find a whole host of episodes she was in and voice actors and um, all these things that give it legitimacy but it's not real it's It's not factual fake it's not factual it was it was a a joke that got out of hand that gained its own authority and became a thing right so it's like when a politician says you know well some people are saying this totally out there thing and then a news agency reports on it so then it's in that news agency and it's been reported on so then in the future when somebody brings it up they'll see that it was reported on back then and that gives it some legitimacy and then somebody makes a wikipedia page out of it and that becomes some article and pretty soon there's this whole web of vacuous nothingness that is just this connection that we have because of the technological era and that's hilarious. Yeah, I think that it almost like doesn't even matter though that like whether something is uh factual or not. And I'm I say this as someone who 
cares a lot about trying to figure out like what is true and factual. Mm -hmm. But I think in this conversation, like whether or not something is true or false, it, it if it has authority, it's going to impact the world in a certain way. And I think that's what makes Absolutely. authority really interesting and dangerous and powerful and interesting is that like, yes, we care about what is true and real, but we still have to reckon with the consequences of authority that like proposes something that is at the core false, even if we like brush it off as like, oh, well, that's not true. Like that's, you know, stupid, just like whatever propaganda, whatever it is. Um, and that may be true um, at the bottom, but I still think like there are, there are people who uh, will buy into that and like, depending on who the authority is, there can be major like political implications for the things that are spread around the internet or just like crazy conspiracies. And so like whether or not it's true, we have to be looking at the the consequences of the whatever it, whatever the true or false thing is that we're looking at. No, I think I think that's I think that's really important. And um anecdotally, I was just at Denver International Airport and it was built a while ago. And there's been this com conspiracy theory that there are bunkers <laughs> down in the basement. And that's you know, a compelling theory, by the way, as know, far as conspiracy theories go. Yeah, oh, I can man. you know, we'll, we're going to put that in our show notes. This is definitely going in the show notes. Cool. This is because one of my it's favorite amazing. conspiracies. It is. And here's here's what's even the next layer, the meta layer of this. So like I said, I was just there August of 2019 and they're doing major, major renovations of the primary terminal. And throughout, they then have these giant like, posters that that kind of make fun of their own conspiracy um, as they're doing <laughs> all of this work um, to say, so what really is under those tunnels? We'll never know because we're doing more construction. Really? And, really. And they're. So they've gone full Yankee Doodle and just owned it. That's right. And so now people that don't know of this conspiracy prior are now going. DIA is a pretty big airport are now going through this terminal going, what conspiracy? And maybe it's getting legs of its own and suddenly a conspiracy will no longer be a conspiracy, but a quote-unquote fact, even though there's no truth behind, or it will become true, but not fact. And I think we also really have to be careful when we say true as, a, as compared to truth and fact. Mm -hmm. That one is kind of innocuous, right? That, that there's it's secret funny. government bunkers under the airport. It's but you remember, you remember Pizzagate, where oh, yeah. fake yeah. news was going around that the, the the Clintons and a bunch of other high profile people had this underground child sex trafficking ring. And there was this pizza place that that was the center of it all. And a guy came with an assault rifle to, From try, our to, state, free, by the way. to try to free the children that were there. I mean, thank God nobody got shot, but that got dangerous. Yeah, that. that yeah. That was scary. So maybe the, the question that you originally posed, Zach, about like, what's the ratio of, uh, how did you put it? The ratio of truth to 
consensus. 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 I wonder if maybe, like, in listening to our conversation, I'm starting to think that the ideal would be that uh, like using the tools of science would lead to 100% truth. But that's just an ideal. Hmm. The methodology that's to, like, reach idea. that is through consensus. And that's not to say that it's perfect. But I think most often, like, that's that's what we can rely on. Yeah, unlike a lot of systems, ideally, science is supposed to check itself. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what has made it so successful. It's supposed to be able to identify when it's not factual and then correct it. Um, it doesn't always. And I, it's probably a fool's dream to think we'll ever get to that 100%. But it's set up to be more successful than any other system. Well, one of the things that I I find interesting, one of the things I find fascinating about the scientific world is that typically, at least most, the majority of the scientists that I have ever communicated with or anything acknowledge the fact that reaching 100%, you know, consensus or, you know, saying that, oh, this is um, absolute they they don't say that they they recognize the fact that there is always a possibility of new evidence emerging or something or a new way of looking at current evidence that how things could change or understandings could change um i find that fascinating i find it um also maybe not fascinating is the right word but at least interesting that people who you know are opposed to things like evolution or who are against the findings from the scientific community when it comes to climate change, that they will use that as a way to say that, well, you know, since there's only 97%, you know, when it comes to climate change, for example, of, of the research done out there supports this, this narrative that clearly it's not true. You know, so they'll, they'll take that idea, the tentative nature of science and manipulate the public with it. Because people have this, this you know, science is put, and I think we've said this in an earlier episode, science is put onto a pedestal of this is the, the premier bit of knowledge. And, you know, if it's knowledge that's accepted by the community, then it is 100% agreed to. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's still the, um, the hubris of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, right. When we imagined that science would be the savior of all things and we'd be able to understand all of the circuitry of the universe. Right. You know, and and then when you have people who will argue against science, will say, you know, things like, well, you know, 50 years ago, this used to be the, the, um, the accepted understanding. And now, now it's this. So clearly science doesn't know what's going on. I'm like, actually that shows the power of science. Not, not that science is bad or you can't trust it. That actually is good. So anyway, Kendra, you were gonna. Were you gonna say something? Uh, yeah, I was just gonna maybe transition to a, a question that could help us maybe give a little bit more, uh, give, give some legs to the conversation. Um, I think somebody used that metaphor earlier. Maybe it was Rachel. I don't know, but I like it. Um, so we've been talking about authority and uh, talking in uh, maybe a little bit more like general or broad terms, but. Um, maybe we could think about an interesting case that uh, you've witnessed or read about recently where authorities between religion and science clash somehow. Does anybody have um, an example of something you're thinking about and 
like you can tell us what happened and why did it strike you as interesting and what do you think the implications are of that case yeah um so i i was reading recently about a a telescope 30 meter telescope that has been trying to be built on the peak of a mountain in hawaii it is apparently oh, yeah, in yeah. just the best location in the world in order to observe deep, deep, deep past, um, almost unparalleled in terms of where you can, how far you can see while still being on Earth. The problem being, it is a sacred site to the local Hawaiian natives. Uh -huh. And so they've been protesting and they've been caught up in litigations and um, trying yeah. to defend their religious heritage and what is still important to them. Um, and just recently, when was this? Um, just a month or two ago, um, the, courts decided, the courts gave permission to begin the construction of the telescope. And I, don't, I didn't read the, the brief, so I'm not entirely sure of their, their reasoning and justification for it. Um, I don't feel like I need to, because I'm sure whatever it is, is just the justification for the same stuff that we've been doing for a very long time when our scientific progress is in some way hindered by you know the folksy religions of the native peoples we end up winning every time you know we end up building yeah. the pipeline or blowing up pictures of our presidents into the side of their sacred mountains um, and they get lip service and maybe they'll get a plaque, but they're not treated with a whole lot of respect. Now, do the same thing to the Temple Mount and you have World War III. Right? That's, that's a different religion. That's a religion of the majority. When you have a religion of the minority, then they get trampled on and mm -hmm. their views are seen as folksy and superstitious and not really all that, all that accurate. That to me is, is troubling. Mm-hmm. And Zach, how do you, like, when you're reading about this story, what did you think, like, th this is such a, a good case study because it happens, like, you're talking about this happens all the time. And if the tables were turned and we were talking about a majority religion, like, the consequences would be so different. But what what was going through your head when you were thinking about, like, what yeah. what would be the ideal way to, to deal with this? Like, how do how do you I don't know is there is there some kind of compromise or should we just like leave it alone like what was going through your head when you were reading this story I mean I had heard about this story before as well and when I read it I thought well you know it's only a matter of time because they're not going to be able to keep their mountain we've not let the natives keep anything that is sacred and important to them yeah so I knew it was only a matter of time I think the the good, the moral thing to do would be to leave it alone. Yes, you can build a massive telescope and it will be the best telescope in the world. But for what? And for how long? And at yeah. what cost? Right. What's the human cost in that? You, you and further what is the contribution? The like how will right. this, you know, when you talk about, you know, I think this is where it gets interesting in these conversations is that, well, and I'm not saying that if you can say, well, this is how it helps society, then yes, build the telescope. I'm just 
you know, I think that always needs to be part of the conversation. You know, I do support the idea of doing research, scientific research for the At purpose of doing scientific research. That's led to a lot of things that are then making science applicable to society. But I could see in situations like this, you know, I don't, I'm not very familiar with all of the arguments and so I'd have to read more on it, but I just, anyway, I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a prime location. Yeah. It's but, a Monarchia. I was looking at that now. Yeah. It's a prime location, but necessity is the mother of invention. So don't use that. Find, come up with better technology and go to a place where there's not people. Right. I, like I was just reading about about people in in Nevada and New Mexico who, you know, when we were testing nuclear bombs, entire communities were mm-hmm. unexpectedly just covered in nuclear fallout. Tons of people died. And for what? So that we could continue our research without regard for human cost and human lives. And, you know, for some people thinking about, you know, traditional Hawaiian religion might seem unimportant because there's so few of them. And obviously, if theirs was the real God, there wouldn't be so few of them, right? But if I expect any respect for me and my religious beliefs, then I need to be able to give that to others as well. Yeah, I think that's... um a really important element that we haven't really touched on explicitly here yet, but the idea of like, what does uh, reciprocity mean in a society, especially as um, a society as pluralistic as ours. And that's just like the way the world is increasingly as we have access to places we no longer could communicate with. Like Mm -hmm. you have to, we have to figure out what that means. we can't just flaunt our power and authority willy-nilly, but but reciprocity is not simple either. Um, but it's necessary, I think. Yeah, so maybe, like, are there other people like um, who haven't spoken yet who have anything to add to the story that Zach has raised? One of the, I, what I would call the crux of the issue for me is how do you acknowledge the authority of someone else when you don't agree with the community they're a part of, right? So how do I grant a hearing to an authority I don't acknowledge? The scientist in the Mauna Kea case, right? Um, the scientific community does not acknowledge the authority of the religious suppositions of the people there. Right. The religious folks there do not acknowledge the authority of the scientific claim to creating a technology on that ground. You have two conflicting communities with two conflicting modes of, of granting authority. And the conflict comes because of this overlapping, in this case, physical space that, to me is a very thorny problem. This is where I, I get really nervous about language of authority generally when we talk about religion and science because there's this... I don't want to give up science, right? I, 
and and there's something different about the way maybe like science and the public and science itself works right so there's the, the amount of case to me is actually really really interesting i like it as a, a case to sort of work with because it forces us to wrestle with some of these issues right is the authority being claimed by the scientists to build this 30 meter telescope a scientific authority or is it part of the scientific community's authority that's being claimed and and what's at stake in that difference right i mean it, it honestly it reminds me of the same case that we have with the vaxxers and anti-vaxxers right a very poor scientific study gets refuted by the rest of the scientific community so scientifically we can say this is bad it's poor science right but once it you know gets legs because of a community authority right right hashtag porn stars have authority right then there's this sense right <laughs> that it feels like it felt like it needed to be said right like there's there's this sense that there's a new community that gets formed with a different source of authority that is conflicting over this common space do you give a vaccine so it's there's this interesting piece about to me what the difference between science and the scientific community is and how that when we were talking about like fact and consensus and some of those issues like it, those all get tied up together and there's not a nice neat way to parcel them apart no matter how much we try and that i find infuriating as someone who likes very clear borders for where things go yeah and i i think that is honestly i would guess not a scientist so i won't say for sure right but i would guess that that is a frustration of various scientists who try and enter into these sort of conversations between religion and science or culture and science because those nice neat borders about well here's my replicable study which can be validated or not validated by others takes on this life of its own that is not my intent and i think you see some of that going on in the mauna, mauna kea situation right I bet if you you talk to the folks who are already working at the Mauna Kea Observatory, right, and the, the facilities that are already there, you'd see something very different than the sort of sensationalized public divergence that's going on um, around this issue that tends to want to put us into sort of bifurcating camps. It, it makes yeah. me want to, like, try and get, like, court transcripts, honestly. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Adam, and... I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and I think it also just like goes back to, to like, it, it's really optimistic to think like, oh yeah, we can be, we can have reciprocity between communities and like figure out a way to like negotiate authorities. Like that is a really optimistic thing to say. And that's something I really want to believe. But I think when the rubber hits the road, uh, I'm not sure how optimistic we can be about these conflicting authorities. Um, but I, I also think the question you raise about what's at stake makes me wonder, like, how would how would we react to um, the Mauna Kea story if the if what was at stake on the science side was something more um, like, I don't know, something that had more potential to like save human lives instead right. of being something that was more about exploration. Um, and I raise that because 
not just for this particular example, because I still think that like we need to respect like native peoples who are not representing the majority religions. I'm not saying that the the science would in that case have like complete authority, but I raised that because I think it, it does change the way that people respond to whether uh, science should like continue to bulldoze through certain communities and overtake uh, certain forms of authority in religious communities. Um, when we think about whether that science is going to save lives or just help us learn something really interesting. Um, and sometimes I don't think you can really even um, parse those things because we don't know. And that's like partially why we do science for exploration because it might lead to something that could like better human life. But I think it does complicate the situation a little bit more. Yeah. That's the debate with um, embryonic stem cells, right? That it's potential to save human life, but in many religious people's eyes, that is human life. And so it's a desecration of what is sacred, mm -hmm. right. right? And so there's all these laws in place because a majority religion feels that way. And so we've legislated it away. I mean, but using that same argument, one thing that I noticed, I was having this conversation about embryonic stem cells and how there was, um, I, I don't fully remember all the details at this point, but when creating some vaccines, embryonic stem cells were used, although I don't know if they were embryonic mm -hmm. or if they were uh, more of an aborted, mm -hmm. I think it might've been an aborted fetus stem cells to create vaccines. And there was then a group of Catholics who said, well, for religious reasons, we're not going to use vaccines uh, because it goes against our, our ideology, our, our theology, not because we have anything wrong with vaccines, but because of how this was created and right. we don't support that. Um, and one of the responses from the, from the bioethic standpoint of Catholics, there's a whole, there's a whole council on it, basically said, it's okay <laughs> um, using one thing, you know, one fetus, one embryo, one, one stem cell from a long time ago has saved millions of lives and will continue to do so. And that the if we look at it from a, a very cold, calculated cost-benefit analysis, even their answer was, it's better to do this than not. You're going to save a life that already exists rather than living in the past. So editor's note here. At this point in our recording, Ian had to leave. So before he left, I wanted to record an introduction to a future episode in which I asked people to give their name and their favorite fictional universe, which led us down some strange and hilarious conversations, which I've cut for time, but decided to keep the conversation that happened afterwards because I thought it connected really nicely to the topic that we were discussing this week and that dovetails nicely into next week's continuation about this discussion. Also, I want to apologize for the sound quality of my voice in the rest of this episode. We were trying a new recording technique and, ooh, man, anytime you try something new, something always goes wrong. So, sorry.
And we're back. So you were mid-thought. The train kept going, even though my mouth didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, because now I'm all stuck on the fictional universe. and I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but we were talking well, about... Well, right, but who gave Thanos the authority to decide that what was best for the universe is to destroy half of all life? Right? That was self-given. That was not a consent of the governed. And so it was wielded improperly, which is why he lost. Spoiler alert. I don't think you can say spoiler alert. Man. That movie has been out for a while. Um, and I would I would it. also... S- I could say what I want to say, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. You know, I think the problem is that Thanos didn't actually listen to Spider-Man. Or uh, not Spider-Man, but Spider-Man's mentor, who has one of the greatest lines. With great res- with great power comes great responsibility. Um, Uncle Ben, um, thank you for the cor- the correct citation. Uh, right, so so Thanos didn't have that. He just had great power. Why did he have great power? I don't know. Good genes, because that's how that's <laughs> how he was made. Um, which brings me to another really great horrible universe. The the universe of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit, who says in her very sultry voice, I'm not bad. I was just drawn this way. Oh. <laughs> First off, that was an excellent Jessica Rabbit. You know, I, I'm going to try harder next time. Um, <laughs> she, Thanos was just, maybe he was just that way and he didn't understand the power. And maybe that's where the society did actually come to a consensus that this was just one power hungry dude. And that's why they all needed to stop him, which is why when they had the ability to, they did. Right? Because he might have taken power, but he didn't have authority. A person on a power trip who's taking, you know, who says, follow me and commands everyone to follow him is just taking a walk if he doesn't have any followers. So. Well, the MCU has explored this before with the Sokovia Accords as well. Right. That, you know, who gave you enhanced beings the authority to step in and so often make a mess of things. We didn't vote for you, so therefore you shouldn't have the authority to step in and do these things. Yeah, and I gotta, I gotta throw in some Bible here, um, because we can. <laughs> so, Korach, Korach, and his rebellion. He goes up to Moses and said, "Who gave you the authority to lead these people? Did we not hear from God, God's self, that we are all holy? Who made you holier?" Right. Which always brings in to me Animal Farm. Right. We're all created ex- equal except for some are more created equal, than, more equal than others. Right. Who gave who gave you the authority? And Korach was like, uh, God. <laughs> it wasn't me. Seriously. If God, you know, if if God believes me, this is what God's going to do. And there is this question of whether or not Moses gave God the idea to just uh, you know, open up the hole in the ground or if God talked to Moses and Moses' ear and was like, hey, say this, by the way. And it happened. You know, there's a debate over which came first, which influence or who influenced whom. So so Korach was using that same argument. Who gave you the authority? And that's and from a religious standpoint, I think that's where many of us struggle because it's like, well, 
in some circles, God gave me the authority. And there is no higher authority than God. So anything that you say, going back to Adam's point, how can you then have a conversation if I don't respect or acknowledge the authority to which you profess? Yeah, I'm, I, that is a major point in um, Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason, right. um, which I'm a huge Thomas Paine, Paine fan. Um, we gathered. He grew. He had a he had a house in my in my hometown. It's now a dentist. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. But, from that, is, pain says, to pain. that is so appropriate. Yeah, there you go. Right. He says no one will deny or dispute the power of the Almighty to make such a communication if he pleases. This is revelation to somebody. But admitting, for the sake of a case, that somebody has been something has been revealed to a certain person and not revealed to any other person, as is the case in Moses. Um, it is revelation to that person only. And when he tells it to a second person, a second to a third, a third to a fourth, and so on, it ceases to be a revelation to all those persons. It is revelation to the first person only and hearsay to every other. And consequently, they are not obliged to believe it. And so revelation is a personal matter. And after that, it just becomes hearsay and it, or you have to trust me. It becomes it becomes a communal act of trust instead of a divinely given revelation. I love that. I love that. And I have to give another I have to give another story. There's in the in the Talmud, and I can I can give you the exact citation in the show notes and welcome your comments there. There's this question of a th frankly, of deciding a law, right? Um, it's kind of a, a mundane law, right? It's called the oven of Achnai. You know, can you use this oven for particular purposes? And one, one very famous rabbi says, absolutely, this is what the law says. And every other rabbi says, nah, -uh. just like that. Nah, -uh. it says it's opposite. It doesn't say that. I really picture them on the playground. And and the the first rabbi who's like, no, I know I'm right. And if I'm right, God is going to make the river flow backwards. And the river flows backwards. And it's amazing. And everyone's just like, so? <laughs> That's nice. That's not what the law says. And the first guy, Rabbi Gamliel, <laughs> says, okay, well, I know I'm right. If I'm right and God says that I'm right, God's going to invert the trees. And the roots are going to go to the heavens. And that's exactly what happens. And the trees go up. And the other rabbis are like, so? <laughs> that's not what the law says. And it just becomes, and the final answer is, lo he. The answer is not in heaven. The authority rests with us. God gave us the law, and now it's us. And this is what we decide. You might be factual, you might be truthful with your revelation with God, but that's not the realm that we live in. We live in the realm of people. Lo he, it is not in heaven. It is here with us. Yes. So uh, to to um take it to the to the New Testament. AKA the Christian Bible. Was, yeah. Well, right. I've I've stopped saying Old Testament, by the way. I realized how patronizing that is and insulting. I'm sorry for all of the years I said that. Diversity um, at its finest. <laughs> so 
the the early church was having a a, a problem because there were people out there who were being converted who were Greeks and they were obviously not following any of the laws. Uh, but Jesus had come along and said that you are not beholden to all of the, the letter of the laws. You are free in the spirit. And so they were trying to work that out in their own different municipalities. And some of them were saying, all right, well, that means that you can eat whatever you want and you can do whatever you want. And some were saying, no, this is a the, the Jewish Messiah. So you need to be a part of Judaism as well. And this is just you know, with the expansion pack, you, you got to have Jesus and Messiah and all that as well. And they had this big council and they decided, and I love the phrase, they said, it seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit to not require you to be circumcised. That it seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit, not thus saith the Lord, but it seemed right in this community and to the Holy Spirit that we were discerning that you don't need to be circumcised, which first of all, probably helped with conversions. Right. Um, and But then they gave them a couple of other requirements, uh, like you're not supposed to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Um, and so then Paul takes that message and goes out into the Gentile world to go make converts. And one of the first things he does is to, with his, with his uh, co-conspirator, Timothy, is he circumcises him because he's half Jewish half Greek, and he figured that the people in those places wouldn't take him seriously if he was not in the tribe. And so he went against the rule that had been made, because in that situation, it would do more harm than good. And then he goes ahead and tells the church in Corinth, um, oh yeah, there's no problem in eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's just, that's just you know, for people whose faith is weaker, and you know, this is a big problem for them, just we don't want to be a stumbling block about a non-essential issue. And so he just goes off and disregards what was the decree set down, the very first decrees in the very first council, just disregards them when he comes into a situation that requires a different application of those, uh, of those principles. And that's in our canon. And so the fundamentalist in me says that both have to be true, even though they are conflicting. This has been episode five of the Down the Wormhole podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you crazy kids are listening these days. Check us out at downthewormhole.com for show notes and links to all our social media accounts. Join us next week as we go deeper into questions of authority in an age of misinformation and competing worldviews. And, you know, I wasn't kidding before about wanting you to join the conversation, too. Uh, we'd love if you would ask questions and push back and send us hate mail actually no don't don't do that last one but if you'd like to be featured on the show you can record a voice memo and email it to admin at downthewormhole.com in response to episode three dr mark bloom sent us this fascinating tour of his own museum hi i'm mark and i'm a science professor and a christian who studies the intersection of science and religion I've loved your podcast and have been pondering about what you would find in my museum. So my museum would have an antechamber that looks exactly like my childhood church. It would have an A-frame sanctuary, stained glass windows, rows of pews, a baptismal, all that stuff. A Sunday school classroom with little plastic chairs, everything that I knew growing up. But as you moved 
through the antechamber and move behind it, you would find a series of rooms that were life-size dioramas that depicted the iconic stories that I learned in Sunday school, such as the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, along with their fig leaves and the serpent, uh, Noah's Ark with every kind of animal, plant, and all those things, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the plagues of Egypt, the battle of Jericho, uh, all of those great stories. But within each diorama, if you looked closely, you would see clues that there might be more to the story. You would find some locked doors with combination locks, secret panels that would open if you pulled just the right hidden lever. And those who looked close enough and were brave enough to follow the paths that would reveal themselves would find these passageways that lead to hidden labyrinths beneath the dioramas, pathways like you find in haunted houses with dark, scary niches, uh, scary sounds, and dead ends. Uh, But those who braved the passageways would find at their end a second version of the dioramas they left behind that reveal much more nuanced and certainly more complex versions of the biblical stories. And the, the people who go there, they would celebrate their deeper understanding of their faith, but they would also feel an acute loneliness because they would realize how so many of their friends and loved ones will never find their way to what they've discovered and might, if they try to share with them what they've learned, consider them to have lost their faith.